the first gift that I got was identification. I have felt so unique and so alone all of my life. And as I listened to people in these rooms, I started to identify. I started to identify with the way that they drank, but then it got so much more. I started to identify with the way that they thought, and I started to identify with the way that they felt and the way that they reacted to alcohol. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Heidi, 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 hi. Hody, 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 ho. That little ditty's been stuck in my head lately. That was the voice of Mr. Jeff V on this here episode number 279 of Sober Speak that you just heard. And you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first, this episode is brought to you by Dave and Chris and Lou and Anonymous and Audrey and Mary Lynn. What you may ask of yourself did Dave and Chris and Lou and Anonymous and Audrey and Mary Lynn do? Well, they went to our website www.soberspeak.com that the lovely Mrs. M keeps in check for all of us. And they went to that little yellow donate tab and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much, Dave and Chris and Lou and Anonymous and Audrey and Mary Lynn. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. I... John M., just another bozo on the bus, will indeed be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get started. Remember, no matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table for all, and we are glad you have joined us. I want this to be a, uh, uh, when I say this, this this podcast to be a place where people can come uh, and feel comfortable and relax, maybe unwind from the day, uh, stay away from the news stations and everything else, and, and be able to help with, uh, hopefully, in bringing you closer to the God of your understanding. Let's get right on into Mr. Jeff V. Jeff V. This one is called The Gift of Identification. 
Jeff has been sober for 30 years, and he is from Fargo, North Dakota, and he is hilarious. Uh, Jeff talks about his uh, terminal uniqueness and his stalker tendencies, talks about his suicide attempt and how that ended up, ended him up in the psych ward. (laughs) You have to hear this one. Uh, And as he explains it, uh, he talks about his attempt to quit drinking by tattooing himself. Spoiler alert, it did not work. Uh, He talks about the common denominators he has deserved with other people staying sober and the difference between happiness and joy and much, much more. So, ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mr. Jeff V. And we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy, Jeff. Okay, everybody. So today we're sitting here with Jeff L. And Jeff L., was referred to me, actually, by Mr. Joe Muck, which many of you have heard on the podcast in the past. And uh, so, so Jeff, first things first, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, give your sobriety date, if you wish, and tell people where you live. Sure, John. Thanks. My name is Jeff. It's Ham with a V. And my sobriety... Oh, yeah, V. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I've had it happen many a times. My sobriety date is March 16th of 1992. And I live in Fargo, North Dakota, where my home group is the Northern Plains Group that meets on Tuesday nights at 7.30. Fargo, North Dakota. Now, are you tired of all the jokes about Fargo in the movie? <laughs> never, never. We love it. We love the attention. It put us on the map. <laughs> Did you grow up in Fargo? Actually, I grew up a little bit north of here, but I've been here now for 25 years. So it's home. It's great. That's great. Do you have a wood chipper in your backyard? Actually, the Chamber of Commerce does have the actual wood chipper signed by the Cohen brothers on display. So if you ever come up to Fargo, I can take you there and we can go see it. So we're uh, recording here and it's winter. What's the temperature like up there today? (laughs) Actually, you're not going to believe me. When I got up and I looked at the forecast, I was thrilled because it's 33 degrees today. So anytime it gets above freezing, we're really, really excited up here. (laughs) But we've got a massive snowstorm coming in here. So we had to stock up on all the supplies because we're supposed to get 8 to 12 inches on Tuesday. Does that So when you stock up on those, all the supplies, does that mean you're going out to the grocery store yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. all your stuff? Yeah. Because you know you're going to be in the house for a few days. Correct. Correct. Stuck. <laughs> so how do you know Joe, by the way? Joe Muck. So Joe and I met years ago. We had the same sponsor. We don't anymore, but we had the same sponsor and we had met. We would do an annual retreat down in Las Vegas. And so he and I had become fast friends there and we've stayed in touch and he's come up and spoken for me. I've come down and spoken for him before. So just one of those great AA relationships that you get. One of the many blessings, you know, of being a part of this fellowship. Yeah, he's a good guy. All right, so with Jeff V, not Jeff uh, L, <laughs> my my apologies. Uh, let's let's go ahead and get started on your story. So, 
I, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is, is that you have spoken at a conference before, which I am very fond of. I've been up there many times. Uh, Crested Butte. Have you been up there more than once or just that one time? Just that one time. Uh, the altitude, I got really bad altitude sickness. In fact, I, I, I believe I was scheduled to speak on a Friday night and they let me move it to like Tuesday night because we ended up having to leave early. Both my wife and I, you know, we live in Fargo where, you know, the altitude here is like 400 square feet or 400 feet. So uh, being up at 9,000 feet was just (laughs) too much to bear. (laughs) Yeah, and I get the same thing. I know exactly what you're talking about. Did they give you any oxygen or anything like that? Yeah, we had those little cans and those canisters that we were walking around and I was drinking water and we were doing everything we could, but it was tough. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, all right, so let's go with Jeff V here. Uh, let's start with where you came from. You know what it was, li- what you were like. You know what happened, what you're like now. Where do you want to start, Jeff? Let's start with what we were like. Uh, I'll go back, and and uh, I won't bore you with a, a lot of unnecessary detail. I think that uh, for me, and this is just my belief, uh, I did not grow up in an alcoholic home. I grew up with two parents who uh, are abnormal drinkers, to say the, the, uh, the best. I mean, my father was in the Vietnam War, and he got drunk, and uh, he blacked out. And he woke up the next day. He was mortified that he couldn't remember what had happened the night before, so much so that he never drank again, right? <laughs> my thing with my dad would be, what the hell? Come on. You know, you got to push through that. <laughs> I had a mother who drank one glass of wine on Christmas Eve, and she would not finish it. So I did not have good examples of how to drink. Uh, I grew up thinking that I would not drink. I grew up not wanting to be, I wanted to be a good kid. The problem for me, and I can't stress this enough, there's been something wrong with me long before I ever drank. Sometimes in AA, I think the idea is given is that people, you know, are doing fine and then they drink. Because they drink too much, they have problems at work and they have problems with their finances and problems with relationships and all these different things. Um, And that's not my experience. My experience was that I was screwed up long before I ever drank. I'm a a kid who was walking around. I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of fear. Uh, I had an extremely racy mind. I'm the kind of guy I take everything that's going on around me personal. Uh, I overanalyze things. I, I have a what you might call a superpower of being able to deduce what people really mean based on their <laughs> tones of voice or body language or things like that. Uh, I'm the guy who you can say, hey, you know, hey, Jeff, it's nice to see you. That didn't sound sincere. Uh, I don't think people really like me, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And uh, That's a superpower. I like that. I've never thought of it. Yeah, I can tell what people really mean. I remember... One time I was meeting a therapist and uh, I was explaining to her uh, how sensitive I was and how I was always getting my feelings hurt, right? And she said, you know, Jeff, when people say mean things to you, that's not uncommon that that would hurt your feelings. That doesn't mean you're overly sensitive. And I'm like, yeah, but nobody's actually saying anything mean to me. I just sense that they want to. And uh, (laughs) that's my, my MO. I'm the kind of guy who, I mean, just to give you an idea of the ridiculousness of my sensitivity, I'm the kind of guy who gets deeply hurt when I'm not invited to something that I don't want to be at in the first place, right? <laughs> right. And I feel left out and, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> off moping. So I've just got this head full of bad wiring. And if you, if you have that, 
uh, you fall into a trap that I think a lot of us fall into, which is I start to compare the way I feel on the inside to the way everyone else looks on the outside. And of course, you come up short. Nobody looks as anxious. Nobody looks as guilty. Nobody looks as fearful as I'm walking around feeling. And I don't know what to do with any of this. I'm looking for my spot in life and I can't seem to find it. I'm an eternal optimist, meaning I always think it's going to be better next year. I can vividly remember thinking, you know, I screwed off in the fifth grade, but this is the sixth grade now. I need to buckle down. I've always been waiting to apply myself, apply my potential. And that day just doesn't ever seem to come for me. And so this in and of itself doesn't make me an alcoholic. It makes me neurotic, but it doesn't make me an alcoholic. There has to be one key ingredient. And that key ingredient for me was that I found the answer to my problems when I was 15. Now, I used to be embarrassed, you know, being 15 is when I took my first drink. And I used to think that was young. I used to talk about how young I was. My God, I got into AA and realized that blew me out of the water. We have people here that are 15. They've been sober like 10 years. So, you know, it's not really a big deal. It's not as tragic as I once thought, John. And, uh, uh, but I found the answer to what was wrong with me, which was alcohol. Alcohol is the great fixer for me. And, you know, I'm a guy who walks around and I have all these holes, all these deficiencies. I can feel them in my makeup. And uh, uh, when I drink, it evens everything out and it fills in all the blanks. And the, the best way I know how to describe it is I'm in my teens. I, I grew up in North Dakota. Uh, out up here, there's not a lot to do. So we would always have these big bonfires and, and we'd be out in some field somewhere. And, and I would get invited to this party. And I, I would go and I'm in my head. I spend a lot of time in my head and I'm self-conscious and I don't think anyone really wants me there. And it's, it's very uncomfortable. It's a very, very uncomfortable way to go through life. And I'm sitting at this party begrudgingly. And then I would look over and she would walk in, right? And if you don't know who she is, let me tell you, she is the girl of my dreams, right? Mm -hmm. And I would think to myself, God, if I could get her, if somebody like that was ever interested in me, I'd buckle down, I'd apply myself, everything would be great. But I know in my heart of hearts, no girl like that's ever going to be interested in a guy like me. So I'm certainly not going to go over there and put myself out and take the risk and ask her out. And I sit in this perpetual fear. You know, one of the things I've learned about myself is that my prison, I built it. And all of the locks are on the inside. And I've been waiting for somebody to come for a long time and break me out and show me how to get it, become a part of life. But there is no one that can you know, I'm the only one who can do that. And, and thankfully, uh, as we'll get into later, uh, when I joined AA, it showed me the way out. But uh, I'm at that party and I'm looking at her and I'm pining over what could be, but never will be. Uh, some guy would walk into the party and, and just guys like this, he just looks cool, right? You know, he's just, he's got his hat on backwards and just everybody's excited to see him and high fiving him and stuff. And I just, I hate that guy, right? And I hate that guy because I'm so jealous of him. I'm so jealous of who he is and what he is. And I secretly wish I could be that way. That's who I am sober, right? That's the best I bring to the table. Then I start drinking at this party. And by the third or fourth drink, depending upon what it is, a magical transformation takes place for me. I mean, I literally feel like I stand up a little straighter. I look around the party and it all looks different, right? I'm so glad I came. Hell, I'm making this party. These people are chumps who don't know how to have fun. And here I am. And now I'm going to start righting some wrongs. So I go over to Mr. Haddon backwards and I let him know, hey, man, if you were looking for trouble, you found it. 
You know, I tell you about an hour ago when you got here, there was quite a bit of tension between you and I. He doesn't know this. He doesn't know there was some neurotic fool in the corner having an imaginary war, which, by the way, I will tell you, I have found that most of my wars, most of my conflict is just that. It's imaginary. And uh, um, I, you know, my logic's completely gone at this point. I don't care. I let this guy know if he wants to throw down, I'm ready. And then I leave him befuddled and I wander off to her. Right. And now I, but I'm no longer plagued with this fear, with this inadequacy, with this self doubt. I don't have any of that anymore. And I go to her and I let her know, Hey, I could have anyone I want at this party, male or female, and I'm picking you. And this is a great honor. And she doesn't seem to understand what an honor this is. She doesn't seem to reciprocate interest in me. God damn, I'm not bothered by that at all. I'm like, I feel bad for her that she doesn't, you know, that she's throwing away this great opportunity. That is what alcohol can do for me. Now, in AA, we often quickly want to talk about what alcohol does to us. To us is the consequences. It's the DUIs. It's the jails. It's the broken relationships, the divorce, the bankruptcy, all of the different things. But we forget sometimes there's a reason that we allow alcohol to do what it does to us. And that's because once upon a time, it was doing something for me, something quite magical, if I'm being honest. I have never found anything in my life that had worked up to the point that had worked as well as alcohol did for me. I'm convinced that alcohol prevented a teenage suicide. I really am, because I had no outlet. I didn't know how to deal with life. I didn't know how to deal with emotions. And, um, and I had the great, the great equalizer in alcohol. So alcohol does something magic for me. And I made an unconscious decision right on the spot that I was going to drink as much as I could, as often as I could. And that's one promise I kept. I don't keep a lot of promises to myself, uh, <laughs> but that was one that I did keep. And I just took off. I noticed early on that I drink abnormally. It was very clear to me that I have no off button, that once I start drinking, once alcohol gets into my body, I start ingesting way more than I plan to. And I was always going out with the intention of just getting there. Right. And real alcoholics know where there is. You can see kind of a smile come over their face when you mention it. And I was just going to get, I saw it on yours, John, you're a real alcoholic. I was just going to get there. Right. And once I got there, we're all doing the same thing. I'm going on maintenance. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to, you know, but I never do that. I go out with the intent of just getting there and I get there and I breeze through there so fast. And I just, I can't help myself. I think to myself, if five drinks makes me feel this good, imagine how good I'm going to feel after eight. Imagine how good I'll feel after 10. You know, right. the old, if one is good, two is better, and I'll take six if I can get it on credit kind of alcoholic mentality. <laughs> and, uh, and that's exactly what I do, right? Is, and I get into trouble, and I drink too much, and I'm a sloppy drunk. And, you know, sometimes in AA, we pride ourselves thinking that we're good at drinking, but nobody gets to AA because they're good at drinking. And I'm not good at drinking. I can just drink a lot. And by my definition, that means I'm good at drinking. But the truth of the matter is that I'm messy. I'm sloppy. I'm a bedwetter. I'm emotional. I'm going to call my girlfriend up at 3 a.m. and profess my love, or my ex-girlfriend, I should say. Um, I'm, I'm a mess. And uh, I always think that I'm going to get on top of it. I always think I'm going to find a way to control and enjoy my drinking, right? the great obsession of every alcoholic. And the problem is I can do one or the other, but never both. I have on rare occasions gone out and controlled my drinking and I can't stand it. 
I don't even understand the point of why you would want to. To this day, I don't. Social drinking is such a foreign concept to me. Uh, I watch people on planes sometimes, and you know they sit there drink and they're stirring their ice cubes around and they set it down and they read and. I don't do any of that, man. When I'm drinking, my drink is in my hand. And I'm ordering three more from the flight attendant just to make sure that I don't go empty. Uh, So I don't have any concept of what it's like to drink socially. And uh, so I'm off, you know, trying to find a solution to what's wrong with me. I don't know. By this time, I'm starting to get into trouble. I've become suicidal. I moved away to college, convinced that if I just changed my environment, that somehow would fix me. It doesn't because ultimately I take the problem with me wherever I go, which is me. Uh, but I got down to college. It was all going to be better. You know, I made a vow to quit drinking once upon a time. Uh, some friends of mine peer pressured me into drinking. And by peer pressured me, I mean, they came by one night and said, hey, we're going out drinking. Do you want to go? And I'm like, wait for me. And off I go. <laughs> The book says I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. I don't even have a mental hesitation, John. I just go. And I was offered. And I, What I heard is, do you want to belong with us? Do you want to be part of? And absolutely I do because I've been looking for that. Because another thing I know about me and a lot of the people that are like me is I walk around terminally unique, feeling like I'm completely alone and that no one really understands what it's like to be me. So I'm off and I go out with my friends and, and – uh, Uh, get drunk again, you know, nothing new. Another, she was at the party this time at college. She'd followed me down. Uh, You know, there was always some girl of my dreams. I was feeling fantastic. in just a place where alcohol can put a guy like me. And I remember I started walking over to her. And as I was walking over to her, this little voice inside of me said, tell this woman the truth. You know, I'm probably going to marry this girl. I don't want to start my relationship off with her on lies. So tell this woman the truth. So by the time I got over there, I told her the, my story, the long, unedited version, and uh, that is not a good idea. I've been married for 26 years, as you'll hear. I don't know that I would dare tell my wife the long, unedited version of my story right now. Uh, so I start telling this girl all this stuff and I'm, how I've thought about suicide a lot, but now that I met you, I'm not going to kill myself. And then, I, <laughs> then I dropped the real bomb on her. I had been following this girl around. And I decided to tell her, you know, I've been following you around, just checking you out. She was not flattered by that, like I thought she should be. And uh, it's the first time I've had the word stalker thrown at me. Uh, Not the last, but uh, so uh, this girl accuses me of being a stalker. And she says, you scare me and I want you to leave. And I was mortified. I was like, you got to be kidding me. So uh, I, uh, uh, I left this party. And uh, I, something snapped inside of me on my way back to my dorm room. And something snapped. I call it the flicker of the light of hope just went out. I just, I just got so sick and tired of being me. And I went back to my dorm room. And by the time I got back there, I was hell-bent on wanting to die and wanting to commit suicide. And uh, I, I took a handful of pills. I was taking sleeping pills at the time. And I took a handful of pills. And I just waited to die. And some friends of mine had followed me back because I'd made such a scene. And they got back and, and they found out what I had done. They got very you know, frantic, of course. And, and my friend says to me, listen, we've got to get you to a hospital so that you talk to a priest. Because if you don't talk to a priest before you die, your soul won't be admitted to heaven. And I was so drunk that made sense to me at the time, right? I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. I literally drove myself to the hospital. Uh, <laughs> so I find a priest. 
We get there. They've called ahead. There's a nurse and two orderlies waiting for me. The nurse is running around like a chicken with her head cut off, and she needs to know what I took. Very important. And I brought the bottle with me. And uh, I remember I pull out the bottle, and I, you know, I showed it to her, and I'm like, what I took were these sleeping pills. And she took the bottle, and she looks at it. She looks at me. She looks back at the bottle, and she starts laughing. I mean, just a belly laugh, right? And I remember even as drunk as I was, I remember thinking, this is an unprofessional reaction to this, and uh, this doesn't seem normal. Um, and, and what had happened, I remember she, she finally she pulled up the bottle and she stopped laughing. And she said, Jeff, what you OD'd on were vitamin C tablets. So I was so drunk I had, <laughs> I had grabbed the wrong uh, bottle, and that's what I – and it didn't dawn on me. You know, I remember when she told me that, I remember I said to her, I'm like, well, I took a whole handful of them. So, uh, so I'm here to tell you that a handful of vitamin C – uh, will not kill you, and that uh, that got me uh, into uh, that got me into the psych ward. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm a guy who has not measured up his whole life, right? And I don't even measure up in the psych ward. I remember talking to other patients in there. I'm like, you know, what are you in for? And some guy was telling me that he could talk to fish, and fish were giving him commands. You know, I'm like, that's legit. He's like, how about you? What are you in for? I OD'd on vitamin C. Uh, I mean. <laughs> That's a real weenie reason to end up in the psych ward and uh, not part of my macho image. Uh, but what it did do is it gave me an introduction into Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, uh, at the age of this, I was 19 at the time, and I went to my first meeting of AA. And I went in, and it's a funny thing. I've spent my entire life wanting to fit in, wanting to uh gain the approval of people around me any group i've ever been around i've sold out my morals my beliefs all just to gain the acceptance and yet i get into alcoholics anonymous and i could not judge my way out of here fast enough uh it, no matter what the case was you're wearing a hat and i'm not you don't know me you're old i'm young i'm old you're young whatever the case i'm a male you're a female whatever i could I tightened the wagons up so much that ultimately it was like, if you're not Jeff V, you don't know me. And I judged my way out. In retrospect, I can tell you why. I didn't know at the time. But the idea of quitting drinking was so terrifying to me. Because while drinking is killing me, and while drinking is causing me all kinds of problems, it's the only solution that I have. There used to be a speaker by the name of Cliff R. out of California. And he used to talk about, you know, Cliff? He used to Cliff talk. Yeah, Cliff Roach, yeah. And he used to talk about, uh, I can give you a story, but I don't know if we should go into it on this or not. I could give you a story of when Cliff and I uh, <laughs> were on this panel, and I just accidentally left him high and dry because I'm cowardly. But anyway, um, but Cliff used to talk about, you know, if 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 he disconnecting yourself from that black ball, right? And if all you can do it for is for 20 minutes, if all you get is 20 minutes, then that's what you take. And at the end, that seemed to me, I, I used to get about a half hour of relief. And if that's all you're going to get, if that's the only way you know to get it, then you take it. Even though you're going to pay a high price, even though of all the consequences, even though all these different things. Um, but anyway, I left AA, uh, convinced it was not the place for me. And uh, uh, with a firm resolution that if I want to quit drinking, uh, I can quit drinking on my own. And I really believe that. And... Uh, uh, I tried for the next two years. The next two years, the most time that I was ever able to put together was two weeks. So I'm well aware of what I can get on my own power. And as I told you at the outset of this of this little session, 
my sobriety date is March 16th of 1992. That's 30 years. That's 30 years of God-given time that I've been given by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, by the fellowship, by the 12 steps, by the 12 traditions, by the 12 concepts, by a sponsor, by a home group, by not saying no to AA requests, by doing all the things that we're taught to do here. And uh, I am eternally grateful uh, for what AA has done for me. So, uh, but I was at the age of 19, I was not ready. Uh, tried a variety of different ways to to quit drinking on my own. Uh, I had somebody ask me recently, I was going through some of them, and somebody asked me, how many of those are true? It's like everything I'm telling you is true. It's not, I'm not making this up just for the sake of a podium fodder. Uh, but to give you an example, because apparently they're so ridiculous that they don't even sound believable. Give you an example of an idea I had to quit drinking. Uh, I decided to get a tattoo, and uh, I put a lot of thought into this. And I got a tattoo of Wiley Coyote from the Roadrunner cartoons. I got <laughs> Wiley Coyote, and then I had the eyes bloodshot of Wiley. I had him bloodshotted out for the eternal hangover. And the plan was, if I was ever tempted by alcohol again, all I would ever need to do is look at this tattoo, and I would be reminded of, oh, God, no, I can't do that. I remember all the horrors of alcohol and my alcoholism. There's no way that I would ever drink again now that I have this permanent reminder etched on my body. It's a great plan. It may work. It may not. I wouldn't know because I put the tattoo on my back. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm thinking about drinking. Yeah, I don't see any reason why not. Let's go. Off we go. I don't know. <laughs> so all these different things. And uh, by the time that I was 21 years old, I had run out of ideas. I had run out of ideas, and uh, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous very reluctantly, very begrudgingly, but more than that, just terrified, just absolutely terrified. The first God in my life, because I had no belief in God when I first got sober, so the first God in my life was the gift of desperation. I just had run out of ideas. I had run out of hope. I would run out of avenues to pursue, and I finally came in here, and I did the most valuable thing that a guy like me could do which was just sat down and shut up. I was just done. I was done fighting. And I sat down and I just started to attend meetings. And a funny thing happened with me when I started to attend meetings and just sit and listen. There's two things that I think you need to get to really stay here. The first, I don't think AA will work until this first one happens. The first gift that I got was identification. I have felt so unique and so alone all of my life and as I listened to people in these rooms, I started to identify. I started to identify with the way that they drank, but then it got so much more. I started to identify with the way that they thought, and I started to identify with the way that they felt and the way that they reacted to alcohol. I remember for the first time I heard someone talk about they used to lie in excess of how much they drink because they thought it made them look cool, which I did once upon a time. And then they became the guy who drank so much that they were embarrassed and they lied to minimize it. I've done that. I've lived that. I thought I was the only one who had done it. And so by staying here and listening, I got the first gift that AA ever gave me, which was identification. And then followed quickly by, and the, more importantly, the gift of hope, right? Because it started to dawn on me, these people are just like me, except that they seem to be enjoying themselves in their sobriety. They seem to be enjoying what they're doing. And maybe, just maybe, 
if I did what they did, I could have what they have. And, uh, and that was the gift of hope for me. And so I started looking around and there were some common denominators and you're going to find a thousand different paths in AA, each one more truthful than the next big book thumpers who are religious about what it needs to be fellowship people who that's the only thing that they need. I mean, there's just an abundance of paths, right? But there were some common denominators that I noticed from people who genuinely looked like they were happy to be sober. It seemed like most of them had a sponsor and were actively engaged with that sponsor. Seemed like most of the people I respected had a home group and had a job in that home group and were actively participating in it. It seemed like they were involved in the fellowship and not isolating themselves at home like I like to do. Uh, It seemed like they have a working understanding of the 12 traditions. Uh, It seemed like most of the people that I've always respected in AA have some grasp of of the philosophy of trying to work with others. And when I say work with others, I'm not talking about sponsoring others. They're two different things. But just this element of I'm trying to work with other people and carry a message. And, uh, and so I decided to start doing those things. And I got a sponsor. Now, it's a funny thing about being an alcoholic. We're egomaniacs with inferiority complexes. So I walk around. What that means is I walk around and on one side of the coin, go into a job interview, you know, and think, oh, these people will never hire me. They're going to see right through me. I'm a fraud. I'm a phony. I'm a fake. And as soon as I get done with the interview, those people would be fools not to hire me, right? I can just <laughs> just go from one to the other. And um, and so I'm walking around and I'm, I'm literally, I'm by this time six months sober and I'm almost suicidal again. And I feel so depressed and so hopeless. And, and then I decide I better get a sponsor. Who am I going to bestow the greatest honor of their life with by being my sponsor, <laughs> right? And this is, this is who I am. And, uh, there was a group of guys who, who would come into the meeting and, and, uh, they were always happy and positive and it's winking at each other and giving each other the thumbs up. It seemed to me, they weren't really doing that. That's just how it seemed. Uh, and the ringleader of the bunch, you know, I would find out later that he had been instructed by his sponsor to really start actively looking for sick alcoholics to work with. And I'll tell you right on cue, I came along. (laughs) And uh, I, I went to this guy and I, I asked him if he would be my sponsor. Uh, and uh, he said, yes. He said this at the end. He said, yeah, I'd be happy to sponsor you. I'm going to ask you to participate in your own recovery, which sounded a little ominous. But I thought, OK, well, we'll see what happens. And uh, uh, boy, oh, boy, was he not wrong about that. I mean, this guy, it started out I had to meet him weekly. And we would meet, he would let me go on and on for a little while, because for the first 15 minutes, I'd just be whining about things, or people are looking at me funny. I was always convinced there was some kind of a conspiracy against me. I mean, just I had all kinds of obscene, stupid ideas. And uh, and then he would pull out the book. He would pull out, I I guess I don't need to visually do it. There's nobody looking. (laughs) Anyway, pretend I have a book. He would pull out his book, and he'd be like, well, why don't we start reading in here? And we went from from cover to cover. We read the first 164 pages of the big book. And I found out that the directions on how to work the steps were cleverly hidden in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, (laughs) we went through and just started to do it. And uh, when it said pray, we prayed. And when it said write, we wrote. And uh, meanwhile, I'm going to his home group. I had to join his home group. I had to get a job. My first job in AA was I was a greeter. And I was a horrible greeter. I'm convinced to this day, I'm one of the worst greeters that's ever existed in Alcoholics Anonymous because I was 
sulky and, and uh, negative, and I wasn't happy about being here, and I don't hide it well. So I'm sitting at the door. I'm like, hey, you know, welcome to the meeting. It sucks we can't drink, but it is coffee. And, you know, and that's me as a greeter in AA, offering up hope. And, uh, you know, but my sponsor, God bless him, he just kept working with me. And, uh, and we kept going. Uh, and so my sponsor would trick me into doing things. Uh, he would say things to me like, hey, we're speaking at the hospital on Saturday night can you go? You know, and I never had any good excuse. I'm like, yeah, all right. He's like, okay, we'll meet at my house at five. Now the meeting was at eight o'clock. That seemed awfully early. But by this time, I just assumed that we were going to stand down there and greet for three hours like idiots. So <laughs> I would show up at his house at 5.05. And right away, I would get the lecture on how there was four of us who were supposed to meet there. And I've just wasted five minutes of each person's life. So I've just wasted 20 minutes of people's lives in AA because of my selfishness and self-centeredness. I mean, he was <laughs> always hammering me on this stuff. Then we'd get in the car and I'm in the, we, we start heading out of town, right? And I'm like, I thought we were speaking at the hospital. He's like, yeah, we are, but it's in Bismarck, a hundred miles away. And nobody told me this. I didn't sign off on this. I'm sitting in the back, right? I'm in the back middle hump. And John, you look like you know what I'm talking about. The younger crowd may not know, but if you're wondering, car manufacturers used to put a big, huge hump oh. down the middle of a vehicle specifically to demean newcomers in AA who were late. And, and uh, so I'm sitting in the back middle hump. I'm not happy about that at all. And I'm thinking to myself, this couldn't possibly get any worse. And I was wrong because Chris is in the front, right? Chris is in the front. And Chris is what I like to call the good one. Chris is all fired up on AA. He's been sober for about three weeks. His family's returned. He's been promoted at work. He loves AA. And Chris is in the front. He's like, hey, I made up a game that we can play while we're on the road. Uh, I'm going to pull out a copy of As Bill Sees It, and I'm going to read from it. And then we're going <laughs> to guess what it's from. Is it from the big book, 12 and 12, a letter Bill wrote? You know, who knows? And I'm like... No, absolutely not. I'm in the back thinking to myself, absolutely not. I have no pull over and let me out of this car and I will walk home because I what little bit of dignity I have left, I am not blowing it on that. What the hell did Bill write this in game? There's just no way. But you'll notice the important thing to note there was that that's what I thought. That's not what I said. And one thing I've learned about AA is AA is much more in, in, in concerned with what I do rather than what I think. And thank God, the program is into action, not into thinking. And people like me who are negative and stupid and close-minded, um, I can act my way into better thinking. My problem is I've been trying to think my way into better living all my life. And AA came along with this ridiculous novel concept and said, why don't you try acting your way into better thinking? And that's exactly what I've done. So I didn't say any of that in that car at all. I just kept guessing Grapevine and uh, <laughs> took second place in the What Did Bill Write This In game, which my sponsor seemed pretty impressed with me on a couple of them that I got right. He's like, wow, you knew that was the Grapevine? Hell yeah, I did. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, and that's been, you know, the journey for me. I mean, I could give you countless other examples, but for over the last 30 years, what's happened for me, this is not some rocket to stardom. Uh, this has been about reengaging in life. In fact, to be completely honest with you, uh, I just, I've got a daughter who's sobered up. She's been sober for six months and she just 
had a, a major, major event happen in her life last night. And uh, so we were up late and we were counseling and my, my daughter ended up moving back in with us last night. And, and I'm grateful, of course, that we can provide her a safe and secure landing spot. But my, I was tired. I'm tired and I'm preoccupied and I was thinking about that. And my knee-jerk reaction when I get uncomfortable is to start to bail on commitments. That's just even now, that's who I am. It's my first response is, well, I can't do this podcast. I'm not in the right frame of mind. I'm not in the right headspace. But I have been taught to act better than I feel. I have been taught to show up and take the right action. And maybe it would have been a horrible talk. Maybe it is. I don't know. That's not the point. We're not in the entertainment business here. We're in the sharing our experience, strength, and hope business. And that's really all I can do is share my experience, strength, and hope. Um, so I have a sponsor. I have a home group. I'm doing all these things. I'm, I'm, I'm living my way into better thinking. And I stay sober. I get to a year. I start talking to my sponsor about I feel like I'm missing a gleam in my, in my eye that other people seem to have. He strongly suggests to me that I start working with others. It's been a cornerstone of my recovery for the past 29 years is that I try and work with other alcoholics in any way that I can. That could be giving a ride, that could be showing someone where the coffee is, or most importantly, my most effective 12-step work often is done with my ears, not my mouth. Is just listening to someone. Hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Tell me about it. You look distressed. Let's talk. And, uh, and that's what I've done. When I was two years sober, I met a girl who had what I'd been looking for all my life, which was an interest in me. And that's a really attractive quality. And uh, so we started dating and we were a big mess. And uh, I won't go into all of that, but it gives me an idea how messy we were. We were, uh, we'd been dating for three months and we started seeing a marriage counselor and uh, we weren't even engaged. And we were seeing a marriage counselor already and we just screwed up and you know, I was full of fear and I require people to treat me special every day just so that I can believe that they actually want to be with me and just all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> but we stuck it out. We stuck it out. And as I think I mentioned earlier, we just celebrated 26 years of marriage here. You know, it's not oh, bad for great. a couple who was who was going. We had three beautiful children out of that marriage. Uh, I have a son whose middle name is Wilson after Bill Wilson. Uh, I have oh, a daughter. Wow who uh, my wife vetoed the name Abigail, Dr. Bob, because she doesn't understand the importance of AA. But, <laughs> uh, but I have this daughter. So we had this boy and this girl, you know, and we're cruising along. And, and then we had this, uh, this third child, totally unplanned. We had this third little baby. And now they're not babies anymore. Two of them are adults, and my youngest is 15. And they all live in a house where they've seen their mother and father. My wife's a member of Al-Anon, and we have recovery coming in. Uh, both sides of our house. And it's been a house full of laughter. And it's been a house, you know, my sponsor has a great saying, he talks about self realization without humor is depression. And so when I say that our house is full of laughter, it's full of the best kind of laughter, which is the ability to laugh at ourselves, the ability not to take ourselves so seriously. And, uh, and so that's what I've done. I'll give you a story, John, and then maybe I'll kind of wrap it up. Uh, Years ago, I had gotten into this thing. I wanted to figure out, you know, what is the real payoff of AA? This was a big thing for me is what are we getting? And people tell you that we become happy, joyous, and free. And I started thinking about that one day. And I'm like, I understand freedom. I get freedom, freedom from the bondage of self, freedom from the mental obsession of the mind to drink alcohol. I get freedom and I feel like that's been given to me. But happiness and joy sound an awful lot like each other. And I'm, I'm wondering what the difference is here. Because is it the same thing and they're just using two words to describe it? 
Or is there genuinely some kind of a difference between happiness and joy? And I started this mission of trying to figure this out, and it took me a while. And it was years ago I finally figured it out. My, my son, who at the time was about 15, he'd asked for this laptop. He wanted this, this computer, this laptop for Christmas, and we made it out that we couldn't afford it. It was too expensive and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, secretly we had gotten him the laptop. We wrapped it in an oversized box to throw him off the scent. And, you know, we got to be, it got to be Christmas and we're opening gifts and it's that last gift that you open. And the, the moment finally comes and my son opens up this gift. And when it dawned on him that it was the laptop, I was watching him and the look on his face was pure happiness, right? I mean, the kid was just over the moon happy. And then I looked at his mother looking at him and the look on her face was pure joy. And it dawned on me, we get to have both happen here in Alcoholics Anonymous. We get to be happy. That means sometimes things just go your way. Sometimes every light is green. Sometimes the boss calls you in to tell you good job. Not my experience, but I've sponsored guys that have had it happen. Uh, Sometimes there is no train that you have to wait for, you know. But we also get this gift of joy that I would have never known to even ask for. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I sponsor a lot of men in Alcoholics Anonymous and I get a front row view because it's easier to see AA work in other people's lives than it is my own. And uh, I've watched time and time again the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not just talking about people getting sober, but all kinds of things. Recovering and marriages put back together and watching men that once upon a time were homeless. And now they, in fact, I'm tonight after this, I'm going over to a guy that I sponsor. I got to get some things from him. He's got a big house full of kids, full of wife. They do all this Christmas bacon. When I met him, he literally had a stick with a knapsack. And that was his worldly belongings. He was homeless and he looked horrible and he acted horrible. And now he's one of the greatest family men you'd ever want to meet. And it's just an absolute joy to witness that and to watch that. So the greatest thing in my life is my membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything in my life is predicated on that. My, my relationship with my wife my relationship with my kids, my work relations, my sanity, you name it. It all stems from my involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we used to have an expression when I was new, they used to say, stay in the middle of the bed if you don't want to fall off. And uh, what that means is there's a lot of actions I can take. Don't sleep on the edge. There's a lot of actions that I can take to stay in the middle of the bed. To this day, I have a home group. And if I'm not there, I'm missed. People wonder where I'm at, and I get texts from people, and I need that kind of accountability. I have a sponsor, and I talk to him at least once, if not twice a week. I have a bunch of guys I sponsor, and I talk to them every week. I uh, I try not to say no to AA requests, even when I don't feel like it. And uh, uh, I just continue to put one foot in front of the other. And one day at a time has turned into 30 years for me. And even though I'm at 30 years, I'm not going to become a victim of time. Uh, I'm not going to let my ego trap me into how I ought to be acting or how I ought to be feeling right now. I'm still just as alcoholic as I was on March 16th of 1992. So uh, with that, I think I'm coming up on my time. So John, I'll turn it back to you. That was absolutely great, Jeff. I didn't know what to expect when we got together, but uh, this is more than I expected. And uh, that was, uh, I loved it. You're really, a, you have a gift. Uh, you have a, an incredible gift. I always ended here with a, uh, <clears throat> by reading from page 164 from the big book. Uh, and it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults, <clears throat> excuse me, to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past 
Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing with me today. Yeah, thanks, John. It was nice. It was fun. How about that, Mr. Jeff V from North Dakota, Fargo, North Dakota? He is absolutely something. Remember now, we don't want you sharing your gossip, but we would love for you to share this episode with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. So if you can, go ahead and pause your device, hit that little share button and get that on over to a friend or family member. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback. Dave writes in and Dave says, John, I look forward to your podcast every week. Your story a month or two ago was amazing. It had my eyes leaking a little bit. <laughs> leaking. I <laughs> love that. He says, one of the highest compliments I can get since being sober is when people who know me now, after hearing me describe how I was then go, you, you were like that? Well, that's what I said to myself about you, John. We really do get amended for the better. I love the way you serve. I'm so proud of you. Big smiley face. Take care, brother. Uh, Dave. Well, Dave, that absolutely made my day. Thank you so much for writing that. God bless you too, my friend. And uh, hopefully our paths will cross here one of these days. Tim writes in, and Tim says, Hey, John, uh, I am not sure I ha how I found Sober Speak, but I Google topics about being sober. I hail from Philadelphia and have now on my third attempt, uh, and, and I'm now on my third attempt to be sober, and I have, I've been sober for about four months. Prior to this attempt, I was sober two years and then one year prior to that. I've been trying AA now for a little over 40 years. I'm involved in a few groups now, and I'm a chairperson for the Big Book Tuesday meeting. I also chair Sunday morning Zoom meeting with the topic of God as I understand Him. Best, Tim T. Well, my friend, it's never too late to quit uh, to try again, and I'm glad you got back up on that horse and rode it, or, and, or and not rode it, and are writing it. <laughs> I'm getting my tenses uh, mixed up here. But uh, anyway, Tim, thanks for writing in. I appreciate you. And uh, keep on keeping on, my brother. John writes in another John. He says, Hey, John, I was just listening to your new episode with Gary Kay this morning, and I was surprised to hear you read the email I sent to you a few weeks ago. Well, John, you may be surprised here again. It really brought uh, some light to my morning hearing what I wrote to you at that time. I had just finished my step three. Well, I have since completed my step four inventory and I went through step five with my sponsor earlier this week and now I'm working through step six. This confirms to me that I am on the right path and the spiritual shift I have been feeling over the last while is the real deal. I like how you said that. This confirms to me I'm on the right path and the spiritual shift I have been feeling over the last while is the real deal. 
Very uh, nicely put there. I like that so much, John. He says, I took my 30-day chip last week. Oh, and he sent a photo of of the 30-day chip he got. Thanks for sending that, John. He says, and by the power of God, I am feeling stronger about recovery now than ever before. Your podcast has been instrumental in my recovery this go-around. I listen all day long while running my greater plowing snow Oh, oh, while running my greater plowing snow 12 hours a day in northern BC, Canada. Oh my goodness. Well, that is so cool to know. I hope you're grading some snow or plowing some snow right now. Uh, He says, I just listened to Bill C's whole series on the 12 steps yesterday, and I have started listening to Brian P's episode. Thanks for all you do for all of us in recovery. God bless you, Juan M. I kind of like that. One M. And then he puts big praying hands and a rock on symbol and a big uh, emoji, a a winking smiley face. So anyway, thank you so much, uh, John. One M uh, signing off here. Well, not signing off, but going on to the next uh, listener feedback. Thank you so much, sir. Quan writes in and Quan says, and Quan is a a frequent uh, uh, writer in uh, on the podcast. And he says, howdy, John is Quan one year and 28 days sober and clean, still listening to your podcast. Only about 30 hours a week of it. Now I'm slacking these days. And he put a big laugh out loud sign. And he says, the obsession to use and drink have left me month ago, but I'm still rewiring my thinking. Me too, Mr. Kwan. I get that. Only my HP can help me. Man, do I relate to that, Kwan. He says, uh, but I need my sponsor to guide But I need my sponsor guide to discover what my character defects are. I I too like that yours is a multi bilingual laugh out loud. He's talking about my bilingual skills. Anyway, and he says a San Francisco construction worker signing off. And he and he uh, added some photos of himself on the construction site. Uh, and it was good to see you uh, in person there, Mr. Kwan. Thank you for writing in. Danielle writes in and she says, hello, John. I live in Grapevine, Texas. Well, that's down the road from me, uh, Ms. Danielle. And I'm currently 50 days sober. This time, hopefully the last time. I attend the Grapevine Unity Group mostly, but sometimes I go to Clear Cut Directions in South Lake as well. I found your podcast via a random sobriety podcast search, and I was delighted to hear you're in the DFW area. Yes, ma'am, I am. She says, I've been in and out of the rooms for seven-ish years, and I never knew about the circuit speakers until your podcast. Thank you so much for that. And of course, you have plenty oh, <laughs> awesome interviews <laughs> from many people that inspire me and keep me sober one day at a time. The first speaker that comes to mind is Marina C, episode number 273. During a past sobriety attempt, I attended the Language of the Heart in Colleyville and would occasionally be in the rooms where Marina was. I would hear her shares and think, wow, when I emotionally grow up, I want to be just like her. I never had heard her story before, and I
And I'm so touched and honored that I got to thanks to the work you do. And thanks to Marina for sharing even at such a difficult time. Yeah, right after... Uh, some death in her family. And um, anyway, uh, she put a big heart here. And then she says, another episode that has given me the chance at sobriety is Buddy C, episode number 239. I have had a hard time putting to words why this episode resonates, but I guess Buddy's story gave me permission, I think that's the word to use, to stop battling with having to define my higher power. It just is. That's very good. She says, uh, the Ken D episode cracked me up. Yes, I love Ken D and I love Buddy. She says, your story was amazing as well. I laughed and I cried and I found so much inspiration in your strength. So thankful you decided to share it with us. Anyway, I hope to meet you and some of the other speakers as I trudge the road of happy destiny. Thank you for your service. Your podcast has been a huge part of my recovery. Oh, and I wanted to say you crack me up when you laugh at yourself. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just laugh at you laughing at you. So great. Take care, John. Uh, hear you soon. Oh, hear you soon. As opposed to, I get it, Danielle. As opposed to see you soon. Big smiley face. <laughs> Thanks for writing in, Danielle. I appreciate you. And you know, we do have a Sober Speak Live events every once in a while uh, up here in Frisco, and uh, I'll make an announcement if we have another one. Uh, it just takes a lot of work on my end, to tell you the truth, and uh, that's why I hadn't, I, well, I hadn't had any uh, uh, more often than. Uh, that's why I hadn't had a lot of them lately. I'll put it that way. But anyway, God bless you, Danielle. I hope meet you. Hope to meet you, eyeball to eyeball as well. All right, everybody, that is another. Uh, that's another episode, and I can see some texts coming in from the lovely Mrs. M here. Looks like uh, she wants me to go pick up some uh, uh, buffalo wings. And for me, I'm 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 vegan-ish. Okay, so I I you know I try to be vegan just because I don't know my my body seems to operate better when I do. But I definitely go out uh, when my wife. Uh, uh, whether she wants wings or something, she could, she makes a lot of cookies too, and cookies and baking stuff, and I can't help myself there. But anyway, that's that's a little bit more information than you needed about my personal eating habits. But nonetheless, here we go, and uh, keep coming back. It works if you work it. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. I try to take this one week at a time. Hope to be back next week. God bless y'all. Love you. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate all you guys.